The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of the two said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a, a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. And he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it that we may eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And they said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him. But he said, look, I've served you these many years and I've never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a goat that I would celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who's devoured the property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. His father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is right that we should celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record these words of Jesus, that these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them down, but these words have power today because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit now, open this word to us, perhaps as never before that we would be changed, transformed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why does Jesus 
welcome sinners and eat with them. It's the third week of three. We've come to the end of looking at the prodigal son parable, this most famous parable of Jesus right up there with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everyone knows this story, but do we really know this story? See, this question, why does Jesus welcome sinners and eats with them is the whole reason he tells the parable. Because as we see, if you're with me in Luke chapter 15, turning there in your own Bibles or the Pew Bibles or your iPhone 11s, um, in, 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 in Luke chapter 15 verse 2, we see that by the fact that Jesus is, is welcoming and eating with these sinners, that the Pharisees grumble about it. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells this parable. The, the first week, as we looked at the younger son, we see that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners because he knows and wants us to know that sinners are truly lost children of the Father who are broken but desperately want to go home. And so he eats with them. But the second week, we see even more that the reason Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners the reason he welcomes sinners and eats with them is because we look at the Father, the heart of the Father who runs for lost sons and daughters, who embraces them and redeems them and brings them home, and he bears the full cost of that. But finally this week, as we look at the elder son, the answer to the question, why does Jesus welcome sinners and eats with them, is so that he can show these elder sons who are grumbling in his presence, these Pharisees and these scribes, and if we can hear it at times, you and me, that we as elder sons can understand exactly what elder sons really are. See, what Jesus unpacks here in this third part of the story, this elder son, is that first of all we see elder sons are bitter, really bitter, there's a deep, corrosive bitterness that has taken a hold of these elder sons. But not just bitter, even worse than being bitter, is being blind to the fact that you're bitter. The, the elder sons don't realize. They're blind to it. They don't know who they really are. But not only are they bitter and are they blind, but as we're going to see with this father, elder sons, bitter and blind, are still beloved. Beloved. The father still even wants these Pharisees and scribes, these elder sons, to come home and feast. See, first Jesus is showing that elder sons are bitter. Verse 28 of our text, when the younger son returns and the elder son who's been in the field hears the news, we're told that he was angry and refused to go in. The news of his brother's return resulted in anger and a refusal to join the party. Now what he's angry about, what he's bitter about, is a sense of injustice. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. You, you hear it in the words of verse 29. Look what he says to his father. It's really unpacking his heart. He says, all these years I have served you, and you never gave me a young goat. Yet when this Son of yours returns, who's 
squander the property on prostitutes. You kill the fatted calf for him. I mean, he's adding up his life and the life of his younger brother. And he says, this is not fair. I have served you dutifully. There's a deep injustice within his bitterness. Ultimately, what he's saying to his father is, I've served you, which is literally, I've slaved for you. Dad, the way this relationship really works is a master-to-servant relationship. You're the master, I know, and I have served you well, and therefore, guess what, Dad? You owe me better than this. You owe me better than this. Oh, the bitterness that arises in our sense of injustice. I remember in my senior year of high school at the awards ceremony, at the end of the year, senior year, awards ceremony, all the different awards being handed out for the various disciplines. I knew what I was getting, right? There I am. I'm already a pro singer. I've got an album I've already released. I sang a solo at graduation. I directed the choir, my barber shop quartet. It was, it was exciting, girls and ladies. Um, the barber shop quartet sang... I directed the choir. Did I say that? I directed the choir. <laughs> and so when they came to present the music award, I'm already like halfway out of my seat. And they presented the music award to Phil Riley. <laughs> I, I mean, I was shocked. I almost said something. I was furious. This, this can't be right. I was so bitter. I was so angry. And I'll tell you, I lived in that bitterness for years. I loved to tell that story. I love to just sort of have that cathartic experience of telling that story and all the injustice that's within it. But the truth of the matter is a friend told me several years later after I was telling this story at some party, he says, he says Paul, you know why you didn't get the music award? I said, no. <laughs> he said, because you're an absolute jerk. Yeah, you were talented, but nobody liked you. You burned every bridge. That gets to the blindness in a minute, right? See, this bitterness, this deep bitterness and a sense of injustice. I'm owed something. But here's what's amazing. We treat God like that all the time. We treat God as if he owes us. And you may say, oh, I don't do that. You're tempted to. So often we look at our personal morality and our good behavior as kind of a tally sheet before God. That we begin to say, well, you know, ultimately my relationship with God is, is such that if I, if I do well, that ultimately in some ways, you know, I've got some leverage on God. God owes me something, right? I mean, we do this all the time, right? There's a big promotion coming up at work or there's an opportunity coming, or something, you know, that we really need to pray about, we need God to intervene, what do we do? That week even, just, just in, in fits and starts we do this. That week we say, all right, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna live a really good life this week, I'm gonna be really generous and kind, and I won't look at pornography this week, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna think more about, about others for like two or three days at least, and then God's gonna give me what I want at the end. As if God is a vending machine we push morality into and expect to get what we want in return. 
This is where the elder brother is operating with the father. And that's how we so often operate with God. As Tim Keller says, elder sons obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself, his resemblance to to love him more, to know him more, to delight in him. No, if like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may even be your inspiration, but Jesus is not your savior. If we believe that what we do puts God in credit to us, God in debt to us. That's called a works righteousness. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase about bitterness, says that hell itself, our own sense of personal hell, always begins with a grumble. Our own hell begins with a grumble, a sense of bitterness, some injustice that we think the world or God owes us something else than what we've had offered to us. And that grumble grows because as C.S. Lewis says, we are ultimately bound to be eternal beings. We go on and on. And that grumbling will grow in us, that bitterness will grow in us to the point that all that is left finally is the grumble. And that is the definition of living in a personal hell that we have been consumed by our bitterness and our jealousy and what we think is owed to us. When we don't get what we think is owed to us, we get bitter like this elder son. But here's what's amazing, is Jesus shows us that these elder brothers are not just, these elder sons are not just bitter, but they're blind to it. He, He doesn't even see it. See, in in verse 29, these are his words. Again, he says, I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Really what he's saying is, I am the good son. Come on, you've got to acknowledge that I'm the good son. And the problem is, it, it just isn't true if you keep reading. In fact, you go right back to the beginning Right, way at the beginning of the story, back in verse 12, when the father is dividing the property, this younger son, his totally sinful, rebellious, inappropriate request that the father give him his share of the property, right? Well, verse 12 goes on to say, and the father divided it between them. Who's the them? Two sons. The elder son and the younger son received the property that was coming to them. There's not a word in verse 12 of the elder son protesting as he should have publicly and loudly, Father, do not give me what is coming to me. You matter more to me, Dad, than the property. No, the elder son stays silent and receives exactly what his rebellious younger brother received. There's something already broken in this elder son. But then in verse 28, we read that He's in the field. The introduction to the elder son is that he's in the field. His brothers come home. He's in the field, which means this. He wasn't watching for his younger brother like his father was. He wasn't watching for his son, his younger son, the father's younger son. He wasn't with his father, searching and waiting for his brother to return. No, he went off to get back to work. Now, you may say, come on, 
someone had to do the work. Well, there's more, don't worry. He's not a good son. See, verse 28 says that he refused to go into the party. And you may say, this is just like an adult temper tantrum, right? He's trying to get attention. But you got to remember, this is the ancient Near East. You don't do this. Remember, the fattened calf means the whole village has to come and celebrate. The whole village eats a calf. The whole village is gathered at the family home. And the elder son is refusing to come in. This is a major societal embarrassment. The elder son is supposed to be standing right next to his father in that house co-hosting this celebration. He should be running into the house to take his role, but instead he refuses to come in. And what happens? We're told in verse 28 that the father has to come out and entreat him. That means beg. His father has to come out and beg his elder son to come in in front of all the villagers. This is the second time today that this father has been humiliated by one of his sons. When he speaks of his brother, he doesn't even speak of him as a brother. Verse 30, he says, when this son of yours came. Hear that language? I mean, we do this with our kids, don't we? Like when the kids are misbehaving, it's like, Monica, they're your children today. (laughs) These children of yours. But this elder brother is saying of his brother, son of yours, I'm disowning him. He's dead to me. And even worse, maybe he even wants him to be actually dead. Because what he says next is unbelievable. He says to his father, listen to the words carefully in verse 30. He says, when this son of yours came who devoured the property with prostitutes, And you want to say, hold on a second. Nowhere in this story does it say anything about prostitutes. It says reckless living. We can imagine, but there's no reference here to prostitutes. And let's be clear, the elder son has not even seen his younger brother yet to hear his story. He is inventing this accusation in his head. He is creating an even bigger amount of sin over his brother. And here's ultimately what he's probably doing. He's probably trying to invoke the rights of Deuteronomy 21. And you want to say, oh yeah, we all know the rights of Deuteronomy 21, right? Deuteronomy 21, parents sometimes will feel tempted to write this on the walls of their children's bedrooms. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious child who will not obey the voice of the father or the mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take a hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton, a drunkard, immoral. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." He wants his father to give justice. Dad, the law of Moses says, my brother, your son, should be dead at the city gates. This is not the good son. And he's blind to it. He doesn't even see his brokenness 
and his sin and his evil intent. He thinks he's the hero. But this is the story of a father with two lost sons. Probably one of the greatest examples in literature of this kind of blindness. The the blindness of the one who thinks they're the hero, but in fact they're the villain, is in Les Mis with Inspector Javert who spends his life trying to hunt down this criminal Jean Valjean who discovers grace and mercy and grows into a real human being. But Javert dissolves and denigrates himself into this shell of a human being. But he thinks he's right. He knows his place in the dark. But mine is the way of the Lord. And those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword, and so it has been. And so it's written on the doorways to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. But he's the bad guy. He's the villain. And at the end, when he discovers this is true, he can't even bear to live a moment longer. Elder sons are not just bitter. They're blind. It's that moment, just a page turn away in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus describes the two men going to the synagogue to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself, Jesus says, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified and not the other. We are blind. And we need to pay attention to our propensity to blindness. I remember I was in Ottawa doing a workshop with some of my staff. I'd gone off to a conference and, you know, you go to a conference, you learn all the new tools and you bring them back and you, you run the same tools with your staff. And it's supposed to be very impressive. Like, oh, look, see, I'm a good leader. I'm using the tools. And, and we, we did this exercise on blind spots. We talked all about how people have blind spots and we've got to, you know, unpack these blind spots. And we were all talking about different blind spots. And it was a big cathartic exploration of our blind spots. And, 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 I, and, I, and I said to my staff, you know, this is so great. We've all uncovered so much. We've been honest and open. And I said, you know, one thing I'm really excited about is, you know, of all that, though, I got to say, I've learned one thing, though, that I do appreciate that I'm really cool under pressure. And the whole staff said nothing in response. 
And I went home and I told Monica about this exercise. I was like, this is what we did. And, and we did this. And then, and then I said this and they didn't say anything. She's like, are you kidding? I said, kidding about what? She said, cool under pressure. She said, when you're stressed, everybody knows it. And I said, you know, I just don't see it. And she said, that's why it's called a blind spot. And it was true. We must be open in our prayer lives, in our conversations with our friends, that we do have blind spots. And at times, we will all be like elder sons, tempted to believe that we're kind of the hero of the story, that we're actually doing pretty good. And maybe if we go too far in that, we're going to begin to think that God owes us. But as Revelation chapter 3, 17, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he says, you say that I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Or as Paul would put it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The elder son is not just bitter, but the seeming injustices, the unfairness of his life before the father, but he's blind to it. But as is the amazing grace of this father, even his elder son, bitter and blind, is still beloved, is still loved by this father. Verse 31, what does he say? There's no anger in response. There's no lecturing. There's no putting him in a timeout, which he deserves. But he says, son, you're always with me. And everything that is mine is yours. It's the words of this gracious father again, restoring one of his wicked, rebellious sons back to the house. Son, come home. Come home in the midst of your brokenness and your bitterness and your sin and your shame and your blindness. Come home. Not because you're good, because, son, you're not. But you're my son. This is the radical, prodigal love of a father who bears the humiliation, who bears the weight of a son's sin, a daughter's sin, to have them come home. Doesn't rub their face in it. Doesn't give them an improvement plan. But says, if you are a son, if you are a daughter, then you have the rights of a son and a daughter today come home. And of course, Jesus is ultimately saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees. Like that's kind of the whole point of this story. He's explaining what he's doing by welcoming these sinners and eating with them. And he's kind of at the end saying, so elder sons, why don't you join the feast as well? As Tom Wright says, you know, if they stay out because it's just not their 
cup of tea, that's up to them, but it's not because the Father doesn't love them too. C.S. Lewis says, God loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 1 John 1.31. So where do you see yourself in this story? See, what's interesting with the sons, both sons, the younger son, there'll be moments in your life when you say, I am so the younger son, rebellious in the far country. And there'll be other times when you're the elder son, you're rebellious, but still right at home in the church. And for both sons, they need to hear the gospel The gospel that is summed up in that confession of verse 18 and verse 19, that's true. The confession that says, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But once that confession is out of their mouth, honest before this father, this father brings them home. This is what forgiveness is. This is what grace is. This is the kind of father that we have. And notice that it leaves us on a cliffhanger. You notice that verse 32? Like, that's it. Verse 32. It is right that we should celebrate and be glad because this son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And that's the end of the parable. And you want to say, what happened? Like, did the elder son come in? Did he go off and keep pouting? What's the rest of the story? And here's what's cool. I mean, it's all cool, but here's what I think is really cool. First, this cliffhanger, this abrupt ending, prompts a response in us, right? It, It leaves it asking the question, so how will you complete the story? How does the story end for you? Younger son that you may be this week, elder son that you may be this week, younger daughter, elder daughter, wherever you are this week, how will the story end for you? That that abrupt ending kind of asks that. But here's also what the abrupt ending kind of does. It leaves it open, hanging open. In this parable, which rightly has been described by some as the gospel within the gospel, one of the greatest declarations of the gospel in the gospels, In some ways, by leaving it open with this abrupt ending, it prompts us to continue reading the Jesus story. And as we do it, here's what we begin to see. That this parable is not just a parable for this particular moment, but that it really actually is the ultimate gospel story that Jesus keeps playing out. You keep reading The parable's not over. You read chapter 16 of Luke's gospel, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. What do you see? Jesus continues to teach. He continues to heal. He continues to welcome sinners. He continues to eat with them. He gets arrested. He gets tried. He carries his cross. And as he dies on the cross, he cries out those words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he dies. Our rightful death on that cross and is raised to new life on 
the first day of the week. And suddenly, as we read the whole of the Jesus story, we realize that maybe the reason he left it open at the end of the parable is it's still continuing. That maybe the point has been to teach us ultimately not just about the Father, not just about the Son's but about one other, the true elder son. The true elder son. The one without stain of sin. The one with no bitterness. The one who has a heart that beats the same as his father's. The true elder son who goes into the far country to find his father's lost children. The true elder son who goes into that field and finds that untrue elder son lost in his sin. The true elder son who goes looking and pleading for and welcoming and eating with his father's lost children. See, the real story is even better than the parable. In the, in the parable, we're in our pigsty and we have to make the decision to go home. In the parable, we're all lost out in the field like the elder brother and we need to make a decision whether we're come, gonna come inside. In the real full story of the gospel, the true elder son comes to our pigsty and he carries us home with the hands that have been pierced with our sins. In the true gospel story, the fullest gospel story, the true elder son goes into that field and grabs a hold of that rebellious elder son and brings him home again with those wounded hands of crucifixion. This is why Karl Barth, the probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, when he came to his mammoth systematic theological text about the salvation of the world through Jesus, he titled it, The Son, The Way of the Son into the Far Country. This is the story of Jesus and us. So why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them. Finally, why does he welcome sinners and eat with them? When we look at the whole story, we realize that it's because he's the true elder brother who has come to find and carry home his father's lost children. And this doesn't happen once. Each week, we find ourselves getting lost and that elder son, our elder brother Jesus, finds us in our pigsties and in our fields and he carries us back to his father's house and he lays a feast before us so that we can come home. Jesus eats with sinners still.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.